Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. My name's Emma Bauer, and I'm the editor of GP Online. This week on the podcast, I'm talking to Becky Baird, Senior Fellow at Health Think Tank, the King's Fund. We're discussing primary care networks and looking at how they're getting on, what support they need to succeed, and how the introduction of integrated care systems is likely to impact on them later this year. We'll also be considering what the future holds for PCNs. Don't forget, the podcast is now available every week on a Friday. And next week, I'll be back with Nick and Luke to discuss some of the key news stories affecting general practice. So I'm joined today by Becky Baird, who's a senior fellow at Health Think Tank, the King's Fund. Becky works in the King's Fund's health policy team and leads research and analysis on a number of healthcare issues, but she has a real focus on general practice. She's worked in the NHS and social care for more than 25 years, and before joining the King's Fund, was Associate Director for Service Improvement in a Cancer Network. Thanks for joining us today, Becky. Nice to be here. Could you just explain a little bit about your role at the King's Fund and the work you do? Yes, yeah, so I'm part of the King's Fund's policy team, uh, and I lead um, our policy analysis and research work on general practice. Um, I also do quite a lot of work with our leadership and development uh branch if you like of the King's Fund and uh, working with colleagues we do out go out doing a lot of uh, training organizational development leadership work with uh, people around the country which is a really privileged thing to do and it makes my research much better because I'm often out hearing on the ground from what's going on as well as doing my doing my more ivory tower type research. I know that you've been very involved with primary care networks. As you said there, I know you've done a lot of work with actually people who've been setting up and trying to get primary care networks up and running over the past few years. Yes. They were first obviously introduced in 2019. What's the general picture, do you think, about how well they're working across England? Honestly, it's really varied. And that's an answer I give to virtually everything about general practice. There's just so many of them. There's 1,200 odd primary care networks, just like there are 8,000 odd practices, and they're all really different. So I think it's very hard to give an overview picture. There's research going on uh, through Manchester University at the moment, looking at a more kind of systematic approach to what's going on with primary care networks. But my, my overall impression is a huge range from those who've been working together for a long time in a network, who, who've got really well-established relationships, who are able to kind of really use the PCM model to, to further what they were doing already as groups of practices. There are others who came together not knowing each other, who went through a bit of a, a kind of storming relationship. We did quite a lot of work with those types of practices, forming relationships, falling out, having disagreements, but really working through that, coming together and doing some really, really amazing work. And there are others for whom actually the PCN is really just a vehicle for money to flow. They don't really engage with it as a concept. It's not an organisation after all. And it's really there in name only in some areas. So I think a huge spectrum of that is going on. How has the pandemic affected things? Because obviously the vaccination campaign was very much run through at PCN levels. Yes. And I've heard some talk about the fact it has helped forge a common cause for, for some practices that maybe weren't. Yeah, I think in many areas it did. And actually, for some, it was even PCNs coming together to, to as groups of PCNs to run a vaccine centre, for example. Um, in my hometown, that was certainly true in St Albans. But um, what it did was help, and I think this probably uh, was true of lots of the vaccine programme, it helped forge relationships. And I think forging relationships in crisis is always a really interesting one, not just between the practices and the within the PCN or between PCNs, but also with local authorities, with the voluntary sector, some really interesting relationships being built um, because a lot of the, the rules and regulations that surrounded things were, were kind of lifted. It was a, it was an all hands on deck, let's just get on with this. And I think not just the vaccine programme, actually also the pandemic around hot hubs and that sort of thing coming together to work as a group. I think 
that did definitely help push some relationships further forward. I also do think, though, in some instances, it made it even harder. And those relationships that are fragile have probably fractured a bit more through the pandemic as people have been struggling with workload pressures and have less time to do things. So again, I think those were doing really well. It's kind of pushed them further forward. Is it generally the case that GPs and other members of the primary care team are starting to become much more engaged with PCNs? And I was wondering as well whether you think they've had any success in helping people who haven't previously maybe had local leadership roles to step up and take on those roles. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen some amazing younger leaders um, in in areas who've really done some some fabulous work down Surrey, for example, where we did some work, some really innovative stuff going on. I think it is allowing people who hadn't necessarily been involved in local politics or in the CCG to step up. Um, I think that at the heart of successful primary care networks, and it sounds trite to say this, but it's true, is relationships. And I don't mean that that's just good relationships. I think it's honest relationships, which allows people to have disagreements. We do a lot of work on conflict management with uh, when we go out and work with um, organisations. It's about how you have those difficult conversations. These are these are separate businesses at, who are who are local to each other and are probably not in a partnership together for a reason. <laughs> and, and in some cases, those reasons are very deep seated and go back a long way. And sometimes it's a difference in culture. For example, you're, you're doing is bringing different organisations together who who just might have a very different approach to how they do things and it's being able to have the skills and the time to work through that stuff together to find common common cause and common purpose and to work out how best to make the PCN function well those PCNs that function the best are probably those that are single practice PCNs because you didn't have to do all that they were already of a common culture and I think that made it different. I think we were asking a lot of PCNs with very little leadership and management time to undertake a huge change programme. And I think we can't really underestimate how difficult that is, especially given everything going on at the moment and the amount of time it takes to do that relationship building, not just between GPs, but also between the nursing staff and the other roles, trying to forge a kind of common culture, a common set of goals for it primary care network is challenging. It is a huge ask. And much of the reason most practices would have signed up to be part of PCNs was because basically nearly all of the additional funding that's coming into general practice over the five years of the contract, it comes into PCNs. So basically, if you're not in the network, you, you don't get access to any of that. And obviously, the big driver, really, potentially, is this um, the additional roles reimbursement scheme, which is where lots of the money is coming in. And the idea, obviously, is that we get all these 26,000 new staff and they're supposed to be there and they're going to help alleviate some of the workload and workforce pressures that practices are under. You know, they're obviously really serious issues. Do you think primary care networks can actually do anything to help address these two problems that primary care is facing at the minute? So I've just completed a big study on the implementation of the Additional Roles Programme, which will get published at the end of February. Um, So... That was really interesting talking to people working in the additional roles, talking to primary care network, clinical directors, managers and others and other stakeholders, trying to understand a bit more about these roles. I think the additional roles is really exciting. I think multidisciplinary team working is absolutely the way forward for general practice. But building effective multidisciplinary teams is complicated even within a practice. It requires a shift in the way GPs work. This is not just about having extra staff sitting in extra rooms doing extra clinics. This is about a new way of working. Our estate doesn't lend itself to this kind of working well. 
most practices are all individual consulting rooms. Actually, for really successful multidisciplinary team working, you probably need shared team space and then use the consulting rooms differently. But trying to redevelop the estate to do that is very difficult. And obviously, this came in at a time of pandemic when that was that kind of stuff. The headspace to even do that thinking was difficult. I also think some of the roles that were employed at network level who are split across multiple practices, it's very clear that that is very difficult. And again, it comes down to the sense of what's a PCN? Does it have a, does it have an identity? Is there a set, is there a clear set of shared goals for the PCN as a whole, or is it just a collection of individual practices? And we know that staff need very clear sense of belonging to a team to feel fulfilled. And actually our report explores that quite a lot, which is these roles could be brilliant, but this is a huge change programme. And again, a huge change programme needing to be implemented with very, very little external support. And I think we might come on to talk about the role of integrated care systems. But for me, really important that we don't just let general practice struggle by itself. That as a systems, systems can wrap around general practice. And like, what, what, will we do, what do we need to do? What do we need to put in to support general practice to be the best it can? The additional roles have the potential to be absolutely brilliant. But I'm not sure that we've got all the right ingredients in place right now for that to happen. It seems pretty clear that NHS England want primary care networks to be a crucial part of the new structure, but they obviously need help. They can't just do this all on their own. So what do you think needs to to happen to to give them the support they need to develop? I think there's a few things that need to happen. Uh, One is that medical training... (laughs) all the way through needs to really think about leadership training and management training. And I think it's lacking. I think, I don't think uh, young doctors get exposed enough to the kind of things they'll have to think about as leaders of organisations and businesses. Um, they, they get huge training in clinical, but they don't get much training in management. I'd like to see that as a really core part of the, of not just the undergraduate cur- curriculum, but particularly the specialist curriculum. So we're making sure that the doctors in the future are really skilled in things like conflict management, about building teams, about all those kind of complex things that we're asking GPs to do. That's one thing. Secondly, I think um, since the 2012 Act reforms, when primary care trusts uh, disappeared and were replaced by CCGs on a larger footprint, I think a lot of the expertise that existed to support primary care development disappeared. Some CCGs kept those staff, kept those relationships. Um, Tower Hamlets is a really great example of places which have really worked hard to support uh, general practice to develop right the way through. But in other areas, all that expertise disappeared. In some areas, GP federations have really stepped into the breach and are doing great work to do that support. In other areas, the LMC are doing it. In other areas, it's the CCG, but it's really patchy and it's not particularly well funded to do this work. So I think there's something about for integrated care systems is who is responsible for supporting the development of primary care? Who's there to support practices who are struggling? Who's there to support the implementation of new digital systems? Who's there to support organisational development and change management programmes when we're putting in new roles? Who's who's providing that support? If we were putting new roles into an NHS trust, there'd be an HR department, there'd be an OD department, there'd be all kinds of change management programmes going on in NHS trusts. That does not exist in general practice. And if it does exist, it's patchy. And let's think about and it, it might not be the same solution everywhere. In fact, it probably isn't. It depends on what the local structures are. But let's really think about what do um, 
what what's the system going to do to support general practice to do that so that's another thing I think estates is increasingly a big issue and I think um, again thinking about capital and estate for primary care as part of a wider ICS estate strategy becomes really important again you get this conflict around the fact that they're independent businesses but actually if we're really thinking about primary care networks being the kind of neighbourhood element of a new integrated care system, then actually it's really important to think, have we got the right estate? And are we taking a kind of joined up view about what that community estate might look like to support general practice going forward? From later this year, integrated care systems are supposed to be coming into effect and primary care networks will kind of feed into them. Do you think the new structure is going to benefit networks? Do you think they're more likely to flourish under this new structure or do you think another reorganisation could potentially hamper any progress they're making? I think it's really early to tell. I do worry that integrated care systems, because of their huge footprint, are inevitably going to focus on acute and tertiary care because that's that's what they're covering and I know I've been working out with some places where you've got these really massive trusts who are covering you know I think there's one community trust that covers about 90 PCNs and they don't want to do everything different locally because they can't do it 90 times over so how do you do that how do you how do you do local as well as system approaches and I think place becomes incredibly important to that level which is that whatever that place footprint is and those relationships at place will be the that will be the place I think excuse the pun but that'll be the that'll be the thing where primary care networks are really going to do most of their work and have most of the say I think expecting primary care networks to have a really strong voice at ICS level with one representative on a board is is not helpful and actually they're not going to be working at that scale I think the ICS systems really need to think about what how do they delegate particularly resourcing to place and therefore that's the point at which the PCNs can get access to that kind of that that kind of resource and that kind of conversation and influence I think it's really important that ICSs think carefully about how much they allow their places to determine how resources are going to be spent in a particular area rather than trying to do it a single time over at an ICS level. If people don't know, so place level is is kind it's a terminology, isn't it, that's kind of used in an integrated care system? Yeah, and we we kind of think about it in different ways. And sometimes it's local authority boundary. It might have been an old CCG boundary, although they've changed that many times, it's hard to tell. But 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 often a local authority boundary seems to be the right level to think about. Um where you've got a group of primary care networks, for example. So it's, a neighbourhood might be one primary care network, possibly two, but actually place is going to be a, a, a group but but fits more naturally around a local community. And I think, again, that's going to be different. In some places, it's a market town. In some places, it's um, a, a particular district council. In other places, it's a metropolitan borough. So there'll be different ways that that's organised. But it's about what makes sense where people get the majority of their care. It's really interesting what you were saying about how big ICSs are. You know, I was talking to some people the other day and we were talking about, you know, the coverage of the crisis in the NHS at the minute about the pandemic and the NHS is under so much pressure. And basically everything you read about is all about hospitals. There's nothing there about the pressures that primary care are under. Almost like the whole way through the pandemic, people have measured the pressure the NHS is under, under how well hospitals will cope. Obviously, we're going to have this massive backlog of care. It's getting bigger. So my concern is that, as you mentioned there, that integrated care systems will just end up being all about hospitals, all about trying to tackle the fallout from the pandemic in terms of clearing that backlog. So what what do you think primary care networks 
should kind of be be focusing on as we come out of the pandemic? That's a really good question. One thing I would say is that the backlog in hospitals really, really impacts primary care because all those people waiting for care in hospital are going to their GP while they're waiting and they're being looked after and cared for by their GP while they're waiting. So it's actually, you can't think this is a hospital issue, this is general practice. It does impact across the system. So that's one thing to say. The other is our data is woeful in primary care. So we've just now got activity data, what, for the last couple of years now? We've had vague activity data about what's actually happening in general practice, but we've got literally no idea what the unmet demand is. So we don't know what our equivalent of the waiting list and the backlog is in general practice because we don't know how many people are waiting for appointments. We know who tried to get an appointment and whether they got one or not, but we don't really know all those people who didn't make an appointment because they feel like they can't get through. So you don't know what the battle is, you don't know what the demand is. So I think data and, and really understanding a bit more about what the pressures are on general practice is key. Increasingly, the exciting bit about primary care networks and the potential around population health, about really working locally in partnership with the voluntary sector, with local authorities, and, and helping people live as healthy lives as possible in their local community. And that kind of community-focused aspect of general practice. I think for me, that should be an exciting part going forward. I think right now we're focused a lot on crisis management about dealing with people who are really sick waiting for care but actually we shouldn't take our eyes off the the longer term goal which is keeping people living healthier for longer and we'll have long-term impact on morbidity and mortality by doing that work so I think how we help PCNs and general practice more generally balance those two how do you care for those who are really sick right now but also work thinking about what will keep people healthy longer in the future how do we how do we create communities and structures in our communities that can support people living longer and healthy and, and with multiple health conditions that's going to be a really interesting balancing act and again it's going to be a different solution in every part of the country but so understanding what the population needs really um one of the things i love uh, primary care net was to have is access to really good data analytics so general practice is actually swimming in its own data it's got masses of data on its own patients but there isn't anybody in a practice, particular, um, unless you're lucky, who can analyse that data and, and actually access to those skilled people who can do data analytics. Really important to understand populations. I'm an ex-NHS manager, so maybe I'm biased in saying this, but we need more management in, in general practice. There's not enough. It's um, they, they need access to things, not just to GPs, obviously really important, and clinical staff really important. But there are a lot of other people that can play a role in taking general practice forward, who can do the work around uh, creating partnerships locally, about building teams, about understanding data, about redesigning systems, that kind of improvement science is really important. It's interesting what you're talking about, because obviously lots of people who are involved in networks who get a lot out of it and who feel that like they're making a difference are people who are starting to tackle some of those issues like you're talking about, you know, working with local communities, doing projects that really start looking at things like health inequalities. But you know, NHS England, the government, I do think they are expecting a lot from networks, aren't they, really, in terms of taking on this health inequality agenda, um, as well as, you know, just just all these new staff supposedly just helping to deal with the existing workload. And much of the things they want networks to do is a, additional work to a certain extent. I mean, obviously, these service specifications have all been kind of suspended through the pandemic, but I'm sure as soon as we kind of have any little glimmer of light that we're coming out of it, they'll be back on the agenda like they were last year before they had to be suspended. 
Do you think networks can really deliver on all this stuff that NHS England wants them to do, as well as do the things that they would like to do? I think the ambition is really important. I think having a goal of doing something around, uh, you know, the service specifications cover really important issues, and that's all really good. But as you say, general practice is struggling already. We've got a We've got like at least 6,000 GP short, if not more than that. We don't really know how many we need, but there's a we're, the workforce crisis underpins everything in the NHS right now, and we have to do something to tackle that. And I think retention of the existing workforce, really understanding what it means uh, to work, what people need to do their jobs properly, and that might be more administrative support, for example, so that you're not spending all your life chasing bloods, 200 prescription requests, all that might view based on my research that we've done at the King's Fund is we're not making the most of these new roles because it's really hard to implement new roles and again that needs supporting it needs headspace and time and if we haven't got the GPs to provide that headspace and time what other support is there out there that can help to do some of this work but let's also really think about what is it going to take to sustain the general practice workforce we're training more GPs than ever before which is marvellous and really really good but what will they need to do the best job that they can do and not be working 12 hour days every day that they're working so that they therefore can only work three days a week because by the time they've done their three days they've already worked 40 hours and that's not part-time so what do they need to be able to make these more sustainable jobs that's probably more of them yes but it's also how do we make the best use of these new roles that frees up GPs to do what they need to do are we going to have a conversation about what it is that GPs are needing to do I have really interesting frequent conversations with the GPs that say I don't actually want the pharmacist, stroke paramedic, stroke whoever, to deal with the earache in the kid because I need that earache because otherwise my day is unbearable. I cannot do complex cases for 12 hours and they're right, they can't. So what would it take that they didn't have to do complex cases for 12 hours, but actually they probably aren't the right person to be seeing the kid with earache that's not the best use of their skill necessarily. Um, so what is it going to take? How do we need to change things? And I think that that's a huge bit of work to do and general practice will need support to do that work properly. So I don't want to set general practice up to fail by saying they've got to do all these wonderful things and everything else and, and they'll just keel over. It's got to be really carefully thought through. So just in terms of that report you mentioned that you've done for the King's Fund on the additional roles reimbursement scheme, I mean, are there actually enough of these roles, enough people in these roles out there for primary care networks to actually recruit? We've been trying to get out of NHS England for probably about five years, the modelling for these roles. But it, it, I think it might exist, but nobody's ever seen it. So my, my fellow think tanks and I have been looking for it. But I think it varies, again, in parts of the country. So there are some parts of the country where there's no problem getting pharmacists. There's loads of them. There are other parts of the country, like Hull, where the local university doesn't offer pharmacy as a programme. So therefore, there are no pharmacists and it's really hard to find pharmacists. But there are lots of other types of roles. So I think flexibility becomes really important. I actually, we interview paramedics as part of our study and, and, and when it's published, there'll be more there. But I think actually some of the um, roles like paramedics, physios and others, they see massive benefit in working across both acute and primary care because it helps them understand the pathways better. I think rotational type posts are really interesting. I think it helps people build skill. So if you're working as a paramedic in primary care, you're probably working mainly with older people, 
really understanding what it means to keep somebody at home. And that really helps you when you're out on the ambulances. And actually, most paramedics I spoke to still work on the ambulances because they keep up their skill. They don't tend to go from what so they share they either run a rotational role or a split role. Same with physiotherapy, actually, the first contact physiotherapist. There are lots and lots of physiotherapists around, a lot of them work in in private practice as well as in the NHS. And they, again, like to work across the pathway because it helps them understand the whole patient journey. And that's that's kind of really interesting, I think. And again, it requires a more systematic and a system-wide view about how you deploy these roles. I think potentially there are those staff out there. It's how think about making best use of those roles across the system, but notwithstanding the fact that we are short of workforce. The current contract where primary care networks have been introduced, that runs until 2324, which is is rapidly approaching <laughs> kind of. Yes. But what do you think success, as it were, would look like for a, a network? I'd love success for a network to look like we've got a multidisciplinary team who work together, who really understand what their local population for that PCN needs. We've got the right staff to be able to meet the needs of our team. So we've got, we've reduced our mental health referrals because we've got some amazing mental health practitioners who are really able to hold people in the community, having better access to data. So we really understand what people need, but there's a lot of things that have to happen to get there. We've looked in internationally, actually, um, uh, did a big study a few years ago looking at innovative models of general practice from around the world. And it's very clear that multidisciplinary team working with different roles is the absolute way forward for primary care across the world. And actually, closer integration of public health and primary care, where I, I mean, and by public health, I also mean community-based uh, initiatives, that kind of that's that's the approach being taken by the World Health Organization and others right across the right across the globe. So it's I don't think that multidisciplinary model is going away. I don't think it should go away. I just think it needs more support to work properly. Would you say that a good thing for a network to do is to kind of look at specific health needs of maybe their population and focus on one thing and try and get some change happening in that? Like you talked there about mental health, getting reducing mental health referrals. Is it is it things like that getting wins that people can feel like they're making a difference? I think that's right. And I think that's one of the reasons that specifications are complex, because in some areas, actually, cardiovascular disease is not the issue. The issue is substance misuse. And I think allowing networks that flexibility and the ability to understand the data so they know what their population needs. And, you know, we have national priorities, yes, but actually every area is different. And particularly at PCN level, they've got some real niche even within a small area, one PCM might have a particular deprived population or a particular group that they work with, and they need to be able to respond to the needs of that population. And those that are doing some of the most innovative and exciting work, I think, are those who've really thought about how they're going to connect in with their local community. But it's important that we can respond at a really granular and local level and also work with communities. And there's some such um, lots of my colleagues at the King's Fund doing some really interesting work on um, community engagement and how do we really work with communities to hear what they want and allow them to create the services and systems that we need and have real impact and input into that and again that's not something we can ask general practice to do by itself that's a huge ask and those community connections and stuff so what what are system what are the ICSs doing about community engagement at that really granular level and how do we feed that into primary care that becomes important too. So primary care networks have only got guaranteed funding up until 2023-24. I mean, are you confident that they're here to stay and that they will be around past that point? I honestly don't know. I wish I could be more confident. I think there's so many factors at play. I think it'll depend on whether uh, 
practices continue to feel that primary care networks provide value to them. And I'm not sure that they all feel like that right now. And so that will be really important. I think it's really, I think um, thinking about the balance between sovereign GP practices and primary care, primary care networks are not just big GP practices. They're not GP practices at scale. They're not, they are a network. And I think we've got to be careful that we don't make kind of lazy assumptions in a way about the fact that, well, primary care networks will just eventually morph into big practices. That's what they'll be. That's not going to happen. I don't think. I mean, it might in a few places where they were already thinking about merger anyway, but actually they're different. So what is the future model going to look like for the business model for general practice? And that requires a lot of thinking through um, at some point. So there's a there's a lot of work to be done, I think, for the future. I do think if we look internationally, we do know that multidisciplinary working and which probably requires some scale because it's hard to do otherwise, is the way forward. But what that looks like in terms of model I don't know but what I do hope is that those relationships that are being built up through networks that sense of place that sense of community and understanding and being able to offer a broader range of services across an area that for me becomes really important and we saw that as you said through the vaccine program that actually responding in that way makes lots and lots of sense to communities well that's it for this week thanks so much to Becky Baird for taking the time to speak with me Don't forget, you can catch up with all the latest news affecting general practice on our website, gponline.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at gponlinenews. If you're enjoying the podcast, then please do think about rating us, and you can subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you have any positive news stories you'd like to share with your colleagues, then please do get in touch. You can email us at gppodcast at haymarket.com. I'll be back next week for our regular news review where the GP Online team will be looking at some of the key news stories affecting general practice. Do tune in then.